Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Happy birthday, Desi. <laughs> oh, hi. That's how we're starting the show today. Yes, thank you so much. It's the birthday edition. It's late, but... You know, I had a stressful travel week. Desi, it's the holidays. It's the holidays. So we're look, not every podcast is producing content right no. now. So we have been producing content this week. Right. So I was driving back yesterday. Yeah. And it was completely pouring rain, if you haven't noticed in uh, Southern California. It was just too stressful. And I w- we were going to record last night, but I was like, I'm just like done. Yeah. It would have been a bad show probably. I wasn't going to make you come over at nine. <laughs> I was just like so tired. You know, driving in the rain is really stressful, especially when the traffic is kind of stop and go. Yeah. So anyway. It, be- it becomes like hypnotic. It was, yeah. It, it just like takes a lot of mental energy because I'm not the best driver anyway. Uh, it's like a st- driving is stressful for me anyhow, like low key always. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're here though. Are we going to do our patron Patreon? Yeah. Oh, do you want to do those? Uh, sure. Let me open that up. Take it away. Okay. So we had David, Raven, Simone. I wonder. No. (laughs) Colleen, Alistair, Shelby, Claudine, Addie, MJ, Bianca, Tracy, Jamila, Shannon, um, Mackenzie. Oh, I wanted to give a special shout out to Tamson. She sent us money for our birthday dinner. I know. Did you see that? I saw that. Sam- thank you. Tamson, thank you. Thank you uh, so much. That was really cool of you. Mackenzie, Emma, Lisa, Amna, Amy, Riley, Andre, Andrea, or Andrea, we don't know, Carol, <laughs> Linda, Bubs, Catherine, Poppy, Elizabeth, Rachel, Tess, Kitty, the best name, Scarlett, also good, Timothy, <laughs> Lord G, Amanda, Jamie, Abby, Lauren, April, Brandy, Stacy, Caitlin, another Caitlin, uh, Crystal. That's a lot. Thank you, guys. That's Thank- the best Christmas gift. It is the best Christmas gift. Thank you for supporting us. And if you want to join them, go over to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. You'll have so much bonus content. I just loaded... Two more things yesterday. And uh, we're recording a... We have a lot coming up in the next day. Yeah, we're recording a bunch of stuff that we're throwing up the end up of there. the month. Uh, dump. Dump. <laughs> we finally get our acts together. We put, give you more content. We, we put content up there every week, but at the end of the month... Our, we have some extras. We have extra content we always put up. Uh, yeah. Okay. So now that we are finished with Rachel's epic four-part series on Titanic the historical story of it all. Uh, We're going to talk about 1997, James Cameron's Titanic. Can't wait. Released in December. 24th anniversary. Very special (laughs) anniversary. (laughs) You know how it is. Needless to say, this movie was a massive commercial and critical success. You all know this movie. The film went on to win 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director for James Cameron. It was the highest grossing film of all time until it was surpassed by Cameron's Avatar uh, like 10 years or more later. It is the second film after Avatar to reach the 2 billion mark. Uh, What the hell? Uh, So (laughs) pretty popular film. It is part disaster movie, part romance, and combines real life characters, some of whom we discussed in Rachel's uh, series, 
with fictional characters and elements, namely the love story between lead actors Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio, who play Rose and Jack. My main source for this book was by Paula Parisi. It is called The Making of James Cameron's Titanic, the inside story of the three-year adventure that rewrote motion picture history. She is one of the few journalists who had access to James Cameron and was on set during a lot of the filming of this movie. This review on Amazon was like, the notoriously thin-skinned director. That's editorializing. (laughs) I mean, he probably is. Just interesting. So she had a lot of access because he did trust her. So that's good. Let's get into the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Titanic the movie came about in an unusual way. It was inspired by James Cameron's lifelong shipwreck uh, shipwreck obsession, and he considered the RMS Titanic to be the Mount Everest of shipwrecks. He was almost thinking that he was too old to do an undersea expedition. He was 37 when he started thinking about this movie. Uh, But he claimed he had a mental restlessness still to live this life that he had turned away from when he switched from science to the arts in college. So around this time, IMAX, there was an IMAX film released of the Titanic wreckage, and he decided to seek Hollywood funding to pay for an expedition uh, and do the same thing that he saw in this IMAX film. Now, he was attaching it to a movie about the Titanic in order to get funding for this underwater expedition. He said that it wasn't particularly because he wanted to make the movie. He wanted to die of the shipwreck, but he did have an idea And um, he had a goal for the movie in mind, his goal being creating living history and truly giving people the feel of what it was like to be on or near the ship when it went down. So he had to sell the studio on this idea and he kind of needed more, he felt, to sell this big budget um, blockbuster. And what better way to punctuate living history than with a love story so that people could really latch their hearts onto this uh, couple and really feel the impact of the loss even more. Luckily, he was coming off a major blockbuster run here. He had just done True Lies. He had done Terminator 2, Aliens, the original Terminator, and studios were all wanting to work with him. Every one of his movies opened number one, so it was like a pretty much guarantee that his film would do that again. I like his movies. Yeah, they're good. I mean, I, I, I can see that he came from a science background. Yeah. And that, that that's his sort of thing. Because all of his movies are very innovative uh, as far as technology goes. And sometimes the scripts are a little weaker <laughs> than what you're seeing on screen. But it doesn't even matter. Uh, yeah, to me, I don't watch his movies for his scripts. Right. Which I, I do not like his, his dialogue or his scripts. But, totally. But his movies, to me are good enough that I can overlook that. Right. You're not going to be able to overlook stuff like that in a small indie movie because the dialogue and the relationships are all there is usually. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. So it was actually his more low-key movie, The Abyss, that was sort of a precursor to Titanic. This is where he got his hands wet, so to speak. Using... (laughs) I actually wrote them. I was like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Using underwater filming technology. um, And he's very hands-on with everything he does. It's all very dangerous, but he's risking his life as well. Uh, So I don't know. Sometimes this stuff is very life-threatening. He has a passion for underwater He really does. He actually almost suffocated on the set of The Abyss. They were scuba diving while filming a lot of these underwater sequences. 
and the onset diving expert had recommended to them that they leave their oxygen masks on to decompress for 30 minutes after they came up, and he fell asleep with his oxygen mask on, and it ran out of oxygen. (gasps) So he woke up clawing the mask off of his face. He was literally suffocating. There was another incident where he ran out of air while diving and almost drowned. Oh my God. So pretty serious. And I bet you it was him being like, no, I have to get this shot. Right. Even though he knew he was low. So as I said, as hard as he was on everyone, he really had this reputation as being an explosive asshole. Right. Like that, that is uh, pretty well, um, I don't even know that he denies it. He pushes himself also to the point of exhaustion, both physically and mentally. And I'm sure that doesn't help his uh, behavior on set if he's always constantly exhausted. So in the mid-90s, he had a first-look deal with 20th Century Fox. But at this point, as I said, any studio would be dying to work with him, even if it meant financing a project that seemed to be more about his self-indulgent need to do a diving expedition than the movie. Uh, Cameron had notes about his Titanic movie that dated back to 1987. So he really was thinking about this for a very long time. Uh, I think another important key to his personality that we were talking about a little bit before is that he was not the director who his origin story includes like, I loved movies and like the stories and the magic of it all. His passion really is has always been science and technology. When he was a kid, he's like, how did they make the monsters? How did they do those special effects? And Titanic would become this chance for him to not only master what he had achieved on the abyss, but also to innovate uh, new stuff and new technology for shooting uh, a movie like this. But he still had to sell this story to the studio. So he wrote a scriptment, which is his version of like a show Bible. It was 160 pages about all the characters, Um, his ideas for having the present day scenes that would sort of bookend um, the Titanic story. He meets with 20th Century Fox executives, including Peter Shernan, and pitches a Romeo and Juliet set on the Titanic. He said they were like, okay, a three-hour romantic (laughs) epic? Sure, that's just what we want. So is there a little Terminator in that or Harrier Jet shootouts or car chases? I said, no, 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 no. It's not like that. The studio was obviously dubious about this being a very commercial uh, story, but they were hoping for this long-term relationship with him, so they gave him the green light to kind of continue on. Now, he convinced them to promote the film based on um, the publicity he would get shooting the Titanic wreck itself. Like That would be part of their publicity campaign to kind of get people worked up for the movie. He organized several dives um, to the Titanic sinking site over a period of two years. He said, my pitch on that had to be a little more detailed. So I said, look, we've got to do this whole opening where they're exploring the Titanic and they find the diamond. So we're going to have all these shots of the ship. Now we can either do them with elaborate models and motion controls and CG and all that, and that will cost a lot of money. Or we can just spend this amount of money, which will be 30% 30 less, and actually go shoot the real wreck. (laughs) So he sold it to them and he got $2 million to um, do this underwater diving expedition. His brother, Mike, was helmed with creating an underwater camera that would give cinematic results. So like a 30 millimeter camera to do underwater shots that he was hoping would be used in the movie. And that footage, I mean, in Titanic, that is the Titanic. No. No? They, They didn't get any usable footage. Well, I'll get into that right oh now. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, my mind. But they used that footage to recreate 
stuff. I mean, it might have been adjusted somewhat, like real, but sort of enhanced in some way. Wow. Uh, Okay. So shooting began in 1995. I mean, that footage is very good. It Uh, would be impossible to get that, I think, based on what I what I read in this book. My mind is fucking (laughs) destroyed right now. So the shooting for this began in 1995. So they shot at the real wreck in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, A a type of diving expedition like this is very dangerous. You're going down in this little fucking submarine. The water pressure is 6,000 pounds per square inch. One small flaw in the vessel's superstructure would mean instant death for all on board. The descriptions of the dives in the book literally made me faint because they would be down there sometimes for 18-hour stretches <gasps> in one of those fucking little subs. These mini subs um, were described as, as having the personal space of being like in a really tight phone booth. No. So that's what each person had around them, like that amount of space. And um, they're obviously not standing. Um, I could never do no. this. Um also, Cameron has severe motion sickness and once vomited in during the ascent due to the rough sea conditions, which they experienced practically the whole shoot. The conditions were just um, really rough. They were off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, which is also known as Hurricane Alley. And during this period, because it was like late August, September, that's hurricane season. Yeah. And hurricanes actually get up there. I honestly was shocked. I was like, <laughs> they go all the way up? Yes. Hurricane Luis happened uh, that year. There was an ocean liner up there, the Queen Elizabeth II, and it was hit by a rogue wave um, during this period. Uh, there was a 98-foot wave that also hit the ship, and the ship did not sustain uh, significant damage, but its arrival in New York was delayed a lot because of uh, this fucking hurricane. So the rough weather also affected these dives. And they talked about how sometimes when they were descending, a current would be there, so it would drift them a mile away from the wreckage, which they then had to navigate at a painstakingly slow pace. Like, that's where I would be like, I'm never... like, Because you imagine how bad every mistake is. Just like... They also... um, almost once ended up on top of the Titanic wreckage, which would have potentially entrapped the sub in like the mangled mess and turned them as into part of the wreckage. Now the Keldish, which is the ship that they used for filming and the real ship they used for this, did have a tow line in case that happened. But it's like, who the hell wants to deal with that situation? Um, so yeah, the... Uh, the adverse conditions really prevented him from getting the high quality footage that he wanted. These dives ended up being an absolute shit show. They go into great detail in the book, but things just were not working. He had bought these massive underwater lights that cost like almost $200,000 to illuminate the wreckage so he could get good footage and they didn't work (gasps) once they were under underwater. He was also furious because he thought the Russians who were running this uh, ship were kind of um, fucking up and they had overestimated their familiarity with the wreckage, which led to a lot of delays. The visuals they had in the sub were just three tiny portals Meaning if you took one wrong turn in the sub, you would completely lose sight of the ship and then it would take you hours to like turn around and find the ship again. I mean, stuff like that just like made it almost impossible. Not to mention, I'm sure being in close quarters with other people on the sub for that long, you'd be irritated with them. Oh, and he was getting irritated with these Russians who were basically running the expedition because they had done it before. This was just a, it's like way different project to go down there and look and try to film stuff that's usable footage. Right. So ultimately, 
ultimately these dives rely a lot on chance and obviously in filmmaking, it's all about controlling situations. So there was really no way to control this situation. Um, he's obviously a huge control freak. And as I said, he really wanted to fire these incompetent Russians, but they were doing him a favor by letting him use their ship. So he kind of had no choice but to go along with it. Give him a break, James. So other mishaps that haven't happened, they actually collided with the Titanic hole once, damaging both the sub and the ship, leaving fragments of the propeller shroud, like scattered around the Titanic. He further broke the Titanic. Absolutely. The external bulkhead of Captain Smith's quarters collapsed, exposing the interior. The area around the grand uh, staircase was also damaged. So um, it did. It was. It was still a, a useful uh, expedition. However, it gave them two things. First of all, it gave them a motivation, a Cameron especially, to do this movie correctly and right. He said that descending upon the site made him really want to live up to the level of reality. But there was another another level of reaction coming away from the real work was which was that it wasn't just a story, it was a drama. It was an event that happened to real people who really died. And working around the wreck for so much time, you get a a strong sense of the profound sadness and justice of it and the message of it. You think there probably aren't going to be a lot of filmmakers who go to Titanic. There may never be another one, maybe a documentarian. Due to this, he felt a great mantle of responsibility to convey the emotional message of it and to do part of it, do that part of it right too. It was also helpful for the future CGI and the green light to keep going. Obviously, um, the footage was enormously useful as far as building the models that they would eventually use in the film. And it was impressive enough to have Fox further green light the project. Uh, So they basically were like, give us a budget so we can move forward. And um, Titanic would consume him for the next two years. So after they get these underwater shots, he begins writing the screenplay. Up to that point, they just had that book. He wanted to honor the people who died, as I mentioned earlier. So he spent six months researching all of the Titanic's crew and passengers. He said, I read everything I could. I created an extremely detailed timeline of the ship's few days and a very detailed timeline of the last nights of its life. I worked within that to write the script. I got some historical experts to analyze what I'd written and commented on it, and I adjusted it. He paid meticulous attention to detail. Uh, initially, the script included a scene depicting the Californians' role, Californians' role in Titanic's demise. Though that will get cut later, and I will get into that later. Um, from the beginning of the shoot, he had a very clear picture of what happened on the ship that night. He had a library filled with one whole wall of writing, uh, um, with of his writing office with Titanic stuff. Um, so he really set the bar high, and he wanted to elevate the movie from what had previously been done. Um, and he really wanted to have this be the definitive visualization of this moment in history. And it would be like you went back in a time machine and shot it for real. I think, I think it's really uh, incredible. Uh, He did a remarkable job with that. Yeah. So Cameron obviously was influenced by the 1958 production, A Night to Remember. He had seen it as a kid. He liberally copies some dialogue and scenes from that film, including the party of the passengers in the steerage and the musicians playing on the deck during the sinking of the uh, ship. He um, he had an interesting theory about the Titanic, thinking that the captain could have loaded everyone onto the iceberg. Wait. <laughs> James Cameron? Yes. Had this Is theory? that possible? Because I, I was like, that sounds like something I would think when I'm high. Yeah. Like, why not just put them on the iceberg? Like... It's big enough. Because <laughs> in the film, it, 
doesn't really look like there's any space. It's not like flat. Do you know what I mean? It's like, very. Cr- I guess you could hang on or something. It, it seemed very craggy. Yeah, and they had passed it too. Yeah, I mean, I, have I guess no they idea. could have rode the the lifeboats to the iceberg and like brought people. Brought people. I have yeah. no idea. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I thought that was really funny because it did seem like me being dumb. Like, what? Why not put them on the iceberg <laughs> with the polar bears? <laughs> um, so. He also, the character of Brock Lovett, who is played by Bill Paxton, he's like the treasure hunter in the movie. Um, He represented those who never connected with the human element of the tragedy. Um, There's the blossoming romance of Jack and Rose I mentioned. So he was like, that's going to be the engaging part of the story. Um, When their love is finally destroyed, the audience will finally mourn this loss, which he felt like people had disconnected from since it was so old. And I, I feel like that's probably true. Yeah. You needed some immediacy to make you feel it, I think. Um, he said, all of my films are love stories, but in Titanic, I finally got the balance right. It's not a disaster film. It's a love story with a fastidious overlay of real history. The statistics of survival were highest for first-class female passengers and lowest for third-class male, according to Cameron's numbers. He had like a whole chart about it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it, it we, makes sense. We talked about that a little bit. Which is uh, why he chose the love story to be between those two types of passengers, but it's also a classic combo. Yeah. Like, what? Whether the sexes are reversed or not, right? The wrong side of the track with the rich. It's pretty in pink. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So he also said, new love is often very untested by trial. And here their first test is the ultimate trial, life or death. Like they've fallen in love and days later, they're, they're at the most, you know, ultimate trial. So he's like, and that's where the story gets interesting. I was like, it's pretty interesting before that even. (laughs) Yeah. Because we all know what's, what's coming. So he framed the romance with the elderly Rose, um, sort of, you know, much in in present time, I guess. And Winslet and Stewart stated their belief that, uh, because Rose falls asleep in her bed at the end, they believe she dies at the end of the film. But Cameron said he left it um, sort of unrevealed. And it's what everyone wants to believe individually. There was no uh, motivation on his part. I thought it was pretty clear she died at the end. (laughs) Well, not according to him. Because the very next shot is young Rose walking back to the grand staircase and everyone there who had died on the ship is there and they all clap. (laughs) They all clap as she ascends the staircase and kisses Leo. Well, maybe she's having a dream. (laughs) The funniest part about that is that it totally, <laughs> it, it implies that when Rose Dawson goes to heaven or Rose Calvert is her name becomes yeah. later on, that she totally disregards the, the majority of, of her life, the majority <laughs> of her life. And she it's, it's relegated to this singular person, this Jack Dawson, right? Like, that's her idea of heaven. It's just funny. It's kind of like when Gene Wilder died and everyone's like, he's back with Gilda. And it's like, well, he's been married for 30 years yeah. to another woman. <laughs> like it's kind of <laughs> disrespectful. Totally. <laughs> uh, anyway, so obviously he gets the script down. Next up is casting. So initially for uh, the role of Rose, he looked at Gwyneth Paltrow, Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Gabriel uh, Anwar, Reese Witherspoon. They were all considered for the role. They all turned it down. Winslet campaigned heavily for the role. She sent him daily notes from England, um, which led Cameron to finally invite her to Hollywood to audition for the movie. 
Um, casting director Molly Finn is who is responsible for basically casting her and DiCaprio eventually. Initially, he wanted like an Audrey Hepburn type for Rose, I guess, which would be like a Winona Ryder would fit that. Um, but obviously, Kate Winslet is not that type. She's a much more feisty <laughs> kind of like type of uh, actress, I would say. And he didn't really want to cast her, but she did impress him during her auditions. Um, He finally saw the thing that he was looking for in her eventually, and he just thought there was a quality in her face and her eyes, and he knew people would be ready to go the distance with her. Uh, Winslet said of her character, she got... She's got a lot to give and she's got a very open heart and she wants to explore and adventure the world, but she feels like that's not going to happen. Now, after she tested with DiCaprio, she's impressed with DiCaprio so much so that she whispers to Cameron, even if you don't pick me, pick him, like he's the right person. So Winslet sent Cameron a single rose with a card signed from your rose, lobbied him by the phone. Like she really pushed for this. She pleaded with him. You don't understand. I am Rose. I don't know why you're seeing anyone else, but she eventually gets the role because she convinces him. Now, Leo, uh, before he was brought on, um, other actors considered were Matthew McConaughey, Chris O'Donnell, Billy Crudup, Stephen Dorth. Um, they were all too old because one sort of thing that he shackled himself with is they're very young. Yes. Uh, Rose is supposedly 17, I think, and Jack is 20, uh, but whatever. That's a really young age to play. Yes. Um, so a lot of those people were just looked too old. Tom Cruise was interested, but obviously he would have had to change the whole movie. Yeah. Because Tom Cruise was way older at that point. Right. And his asking price was way too high. He also considered Jared Leto, but Leto refused to audition. Oh. Jeremy Sisto did a series of screen tests with Kate Winslet and three other actresses who wanted to play Rose. Um, So DiCaprio at age 21 at this time was brought in by, I said, Molly Finn, his casting director. He initially did not want the role, refused to read his romantic scene for Cameron. Uh, He said that once he finally got him to read it, DiCaprio started goofing around and I couldn't get him to focus. Um, But for one split second, a shaft of light came down from the heavens and lit up the forest and he saw... uh, Leo as Jack, but Leo really did not want to do this role. Wow! So uh, it was a it was a difference of character for um it, for they had character conflict, meaning they didn't like the way the character was. Leo didn't like the way the character was written. Right. So Cameron said to him at some point, um, he got fed up with Leo because Leo kept wanting to change things. He's like, look. I don't think you should do this film because I'm not going to make this guy brooding and neurotic. I'm not going to give him a hump and a tick and a twitch and a limp and all the other things that you want. And quite frankly, I think you're looking for playable stuff in the wrong place. The toughest thing an actor can do is have absolutely nothing between himself and the audience. No twitch, no hump, no dark secret from the past. Just a clear, open, honest guy who is interesting and engaging. It's the difference between acting the scene with a prop in your hand and without a prop in your hand. There are very few people who can do that. Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart have come along and made indelible impressions doing that, and they're very rare. If you can do that, you can do anything. So he really convinced Leo that you didn't need all of these things to make this character engaging. Well, you know, if you think prior to yeah. Titanic, all of his big roles like Basketball, that. basketball yeah. Diaries, This Boy's Life, even the Growing Pains character, they all had these sort of tragic totally. backstories. Yeah, so it makes sense because uh, Leo's very young at this age and you know, he's experienced, but still growing as an actor. Um, So, and Cameron was very connected to Jack. He saw himself as this 
between sort of stuck between Jack's free spirited artist and Brock, the guy who was very focused on logistical details and the mission and da 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 da. So finally, Leo uh, relents and he agrees um, if they can embellish Jack's stories in some other ways. Uh, he kind of goes along with it. Um, now, Cameron really took a chance on DiCaprio at this time. He had to convince the studio because DiCaprio was not DiCaprio at this time. No. He's filming Romeo and Juliet still. That has not come out. And that really pushes him into sort of like a, a heartthrob, like big time actor. Um, but the the studio starts seeing the dailies from Romeo and Juliet. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, unfortunately, this, this weight actually made them have to pay more for DiCaprio because his agents were like, well, he's going to be the next big thing. So they ended up having to like double his salary to like 2.5, which was still a deal. Um, So he signs on officially in June of 96. Now there, another interesting fact was um, there are, there are some bodies buried in Nova Scotia that were victims on the uh, Titanic. And after filming, they, they found that one of them was Jay Dawson. (gasps) So there is a tombstone uh, in that area with Jay Dawson. His name is Joseph Dawson. Uh, he was in the engine room. So that was something they found out after uh, after the film was made, Whoa. which is uh, crazy. Um, some other parts, um, Billy Zane obviously play, play, plays the villain, I guess you could say. <laughs> One of the villains. Cal Hockley. Cal. Um, God, he's despicable. I forgot how... Also, I was like, what's his valet's deal? Like, why is he so... Why is he so despicable? Like... I, so okay, so Brendan and I watched Titanic a few days ago. Obviously, like I said, I've seen it a hundred times. He hadn't seen it in like twenty years, and we were just dying laughing the whole time at Billy Zane's character because he's so one-dimensional, evil the whole way. Totally, through. The and whole, you're like, why? Yeah. Why is he this way? <laughs> I need some backstory here. Like, why is he so despicable? <laughs> like the scene where he's shooting at them with the gun. I was like, wait, I completely forgot about the scene. It's crazy. Well, like, it's like they're gonna die. They're on the fucking Titanic. But he's like, no, he had to do it. Right. I mean, okay. Also, when he took the baby to get on the, I mean, it's just like, he is so villainous. Right. So other people considered were Matthew McConaughey and Rob Lowe. To play Cal. Yeah. Oh. I think Rob Lowe would have been good too. Rob Lowe over Matthew McConaughey. Uh, absolutely. Now, another interesting thing is, uh, like I said, they were, he was not spending money on actors. This is not where his, he wanted only cheap actors cause he had, his budget was for other things. Right. The only thing that he, uh, was willing to pay for it was Kathy Bates. Right. Well, so look, yeah, <laughs> you look at a picture of Kathy Bates and then you look at the real Margaret Brown Yeah, and the similarities. Well, not only does she look like her, but Kathy Bates is one of the best actresses. She's great in everything yes. she's in. She's, she's always the best part of anything. Even if it's a bad thing, I'm like, she's still good though. Always. Like, it's always. So yeah, he actually supplemented the, salary the studio was willing to give her with $150,000 of his own money to pay her. That's how bad. So he put his money where his mouth is. He wanted Kathy Bates. And I think uh, it paid off. Now, the thing with Gloria Stewart, he was looking for an actress from the golden age of the 30s and 40s. He had not no idea who she was. They were also considering Faye Ray for the role. But he said she was so lucid and so into it that that's why they uh, eventually went with her. And she's great. Yeah. So... One of the unique things about Titanic was the fact that James Cameron really wanted to give the audience the feeling of being on the t- the Titanic. And what I mean by that is that other times ships 
have been used for Titanic, it's like the Queen Mary. It's never the Titanic. It's always another big uh, ship. The vignettes are usually um, isolated filmings of the sinkings using models and filmed in miniature. It's never like the ship you've seen the whole movie sinking, uh, which is what it is in the Titanic. And he, he wanted it to really look like the ship through and through, not just on the exterior. He commented on the movie A Night to Remember, which he thought did a good job with the dining saloon. Um, and that was sort, sort of where they put all their effort, but everything else was like rich ship stuff, right. not specific to the Titanic. So the accuracy of the ship's decor and layout, as well as the massive models, were the number one priority for him on pre-production. He wanted this to be the Titanic, down to plates having white line, whatever, white star line, white star line stamped on them, right. like the exact China. So yeah, a tad massive part of the budget was these sets and uh, attention to detail. So we'll get more into the budget after a break. Okay. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So... Concerns about the budget were already swirling like crazy. Cameron initially sent in a $125 million budget. Fox asked him to get it under 110. They also had another caveat for him. They wanted the movie to be done for a July 4th, 1997 release. That would be their big summer blockbuster release. Cameron agreed, even though he knew he would not be able to get it done in time just to get the money spigot turned on. Like He's like, there's no turning back now. Sure, I'll get it to you by then. Right. Um, Harland and Wolf, the RMS Titanic's builders, opened their private archives to James Cameron, sharing blueprints that were thought to be lost. For the ship's interior, production designer Peter Lamont's team looked for artifacts from the era. The newness of the ship meant every prop had to be made from scratch because that stuff was created for the Titanic, a lot of those uh, elements. The The film was officially greenlit May 28th by Fox, and they immediately had acquired 40 acres of waterfront um, south of Playa de Rosarita in Mexico to begin building a studio, which happened on May 31st, just days after they got the green light. So they're filming in Mexico. Well, they'll film in two places. The majority of the Titanic stuff is Mexico, and all the the modern-day scenes are in uh, Nova Scotia. Right. So they're also building a horizon tank of 17 million gallons. Um, This is for the exterior of the reconstructed ship, providing 270 degrees of ocean view. The ship was built to full scale, but... Um, he remo- Lamont removed redundant sections on the superstructure and forward well deck for the ship to fit in the tank. So they they did those remaining sections with digital models. So they built a ship. Yes. The lifeboats and funnels were shrunken by 10% to make room in this tank. Uh, so the boat deck and A deck were working sets, but the rest of the ship was just steel plating. So not all the ship was like it wasn't a ship full and full. It was like empty behind a lot of the uh, exterior. Mm-hmm. Within was a 50-foot lifting platform for the ship to tilt during the sinking, sinking sequences. And towering above was a 162-foot tall tower crane on 600 feet of rail track, acting as a combined construction lighting and camera platform. Wow. So that was like up high. Now the sets representing the interior rooms of the Titanic were reproduced exactly as originally built using photographs and plans from the Titanic builders. The grand staircase, which is obviously featured prominently in the movie, was recreated to a high standard of authenticity, but was widened 30% compared to the original and also reinforced with steel girders. Craftsmen from Mexico and Britain sculpted all the paneling and plaster work um, on the Titanic, the walls. There's like a lot of um, detailed uh, paneling, the carpentry, uh, upholstery, individual pieces of furniture, light fixtures, chairs, cutlery, crockery, all had the white line, white star line crest on each piece. Um, so all of these things are created for this movie, like an incredible amount of uh, work. And then so much of it's destroyed too. Well, that was an issue. Sometimes they would have to recreate things that got destroyed. But this is a movie where sometimes it's like, we have one chance at this shot because we're not going to redo 
you know, the skylight crashing down or whatever, like that would be impossible. And as I mentioned earlier, he was working with historians. He had two on set to authenticate every historical detail. So principal photography began uh, in July of 1996, and that was in Nova Scotia. They were filming the modern-day expedition scenes above uh, the Keldish, which is the ship he did um, the expedition on. Now, it's during this shoot that the infamous Chowder incident happens <gasps> on August 8th, 1996, their last scheduled day of shooting in Halifax. They broke for lunch at like 12 a.m. I mean, that's what their days are. Right. Like lunch comes at 12 a.m. Uh, so the precise... <laughs> The precise nature of the chatter has been lost to time. We don't really know what it was. Cameron says that his memory, it was a muscle chowder. Bill Paxton said that he thought it was a clam chowder. The Halifax police report said that it was a lobster chowder. But whatever it was, Susie Amos, the actress who is in these uh, scenes and Cameron's future wife, is one of the few people who didn't eat it that day. He said, Cameron says that he has placed her high on his list of suspects as a result. <laughs> Just Wait, a joke. That's Rose's granddaughter. Yes. Yes. So he he gets married to Linda Hamilton during the Titanic, during this, this shoot in Halifax. Oh. Uh, they get married, but he's already started an affair, I think, with Susie Amos. Uh, oh. So this... I didn't there's this is not in the book. Right. Any of this stuff, but yeah. Uh he's he that that is in the book that he gets married to Linda Hamilton mm. during this uh period. Now Lewis Abernathy is a friend of Cameron's. He had a small role in the film. He gives us the scoop in the book. He had been eating at his hotel since the catering they had was really bad. It oh. was like a small town. There wasn't really uh, someone who could handle a large shoot like this, but they did what they could. So he didn't want to eat the chowder. He, he didn't eat anything. So he ate his hotel. He comes to Cameron the next day and sees that Cameron is suffering what appears to be an upset stomach. He then goes on to set, and according to the book, he wander he was wandering around, and he's like, why is no one here? Hello? Hello? Nothing. Enters the cafeteria. He's hit with a wall of suffering, not unlike that of Scarlett O'Hara in the infirmary scene of Gone with the Wind. 85 people rolling around, completely out of it. He heard some of them talking about seeing streaks and psychedelics. That's when it hit me. Food poisoning. We're going to be knee deep in vomit soon. Really bad seafood can make you hallucinate a little bit. And this caterer was big on clams. At this point, he sees Cameron being wheeled out to a van. Abernathy follows them to the parking lot where they load Cameron into the van. I say, Jim, Jim, where are you going? He turned around and I was shocked at the way he looked. In the 15 minutes since I'd seen him sitting in the chair, he had completely deteriorated, deteriorated. One eye, and this is where life imitates art, one eye was completely red, just like the Terminator eye. A pupil, no iris, beet red. The other eye looked like he'd been sniffing glue since he was four. When you see someone like that, that has changed that dramatically in a short time, you think the next stop is death. I'm looking at him going, Jim, are you okay? He says in a slurred voice, fucking caterer poisoned me. They're taking me to the hospital. And I'm like, Jim, is there anything I can do for you? And I'm thinking he's like, call an organ organ donor bank, next of kin, et cetera. Who do you want me to call in your last hours? And he puts on a big old grin and he says, finish the movie. You know what to do. He said it in such a clear tone and he sounded so happy. I said, now I know you're fucked up. Take him away. And he went willingly with them. Now, some people were laughing. Some people were crying. Some people were throwing up, according to Bill Paxton, who gave an interview about it in 1996. One minute I felt okay. The next minute I felt so goddamn anxious. I wanted to breathe in a paper bag. Cameron was feeling the same way. 
Cameron remembers a Russian-Canadian PA who was working as a translator, summing it up succinctly. I feel toxic and beside myself. The chaotic scene at the hospital makes for one of history's best drug stories, um, even if the affected crew members don't uh, remember what happened during the time. According to a set painter named Marilyn McAvoy, eventually we all got put in the cubicles with the curtains around us, but no one wanted to stay in their cubicles. Everyone was out in the aisles, jumping into other people's cubicles. People had a lot of energy. Some were in wheelchairs flying down the hallways. I mean, everyone was high. Cameron, who says he was stabbed in the face with a pen by a crew member. I'm sitting there bleeding and laughing, watching helplessly as his crew fell apart. People are moaning and crying, wailing, collapsed on tables and girdings. Then the director of photography, Caleb Deschanel, is leading a number of of crew down the hall in a highly vocal conga line. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) Paxton also described the conga line because Deschanel says he doesn't, he, he hasn't, ever commented on the situation. I think he gets fired eventually, so he's probably bitter. Paxton Um, ate the chowder. Yes. Now, a police lab report eventually comes back and confirms Abernathy's uh, suspicions at some point. He thinks that the the clam chowder was spiked with PCP. (gasps) The first thing we did was get everybody together in a big room. When you turn around and a 23-year-old healthy young woman sort of faints for no apparent reason, that's scary. I thought I thought Jonestown, this is like what they were thinking before. They had saved all the samples of the food, so they were able to test them. The local authorities then launched a full investigation, but it was pretty much written off as a prank. Like they could never figure out um, who did it. Um, as ra- outrageous as it sounds, the poisoning incident was only one step removed from what it would have been a fairly routine catering crisis. It looked like the white goopy stuff that poisoned us on Dolores Claiborne, the script supervisor said. I couldn't even think about eating it. So I guess the stuff happens all the time, like food poisoning on these sets. Right. Probably because the food is not stored properly. Yeah. Yeah. So they never found out who spiked it. Well, I'll get into it. Uh, Bill Paxton was later heard saying, how do I get this soup written into all my contracts? So he had fun with it. Now, theories about it. Um, So according to this Vanity Fair article I read on the incident, it was the Hollywood crowd bringing in the psychedelics, insisted the catering company CEO, Earl Scott. I don't think it was purposefully done to hurt somebody. It was done like a party thing that got carried away. So he blamed someone on the set for spiking the punch bowl, basically. Cameron has never named a suspect, but he says he's certain he knows who did it. We had fired a crew member the day before because they were creating trouble with the caterers. So we believe the poisoning was this idiot's plan to get back at the caterers, whom, of course, we promptly fired the next day. So it worked. Wow. So that's his theory. Now... What we do know is that the incident put them a week over schedule because that was their last day, but then that ended up being a huge issue and they still had things to shoot and they were over budget from the start. So from the start, week one, which should have been very easy scenes to film, they're already behind. In September of 1996, the production moves now to the Baja Studios in Rosarito. Um, The full-scale RMS Titanic, Titanic, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) Um, is being constructed. So that's not even done yet. So that's why they have to film... um, A lot of scenes are filmed first because they're waiting for those big... So the scene where they walk up and see the Titanic for the first time is some of the last stuff that they filmed. Wow. Because that's being built almost the whole um, time they're filming. So... 
The poop deck is built on a hinge so it could rise from zero to 90 degrees in a few seconds as the ship is sinking. That's also something they're building almost the whole time. And a lot of the props are made with foam rubber to protect the stuntmen. Because when you see the, the boat tilt, shit's fallen. What about that guy who hits the propeller? Ouch. That was, uh, that's, that's CGI. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a very famous moment. Yeah. They also had a full-time etiquette coach on, on set to instruct the cast um, about how to be an upper-class genti- gentility in 1912. You know who does a good job? Frances Fisher. Oh, she's very uptight. Yeah. So the first scene that gets filmed between uh, Kate Winslet and uh, Leo DiCaprio is the nude scene. No way. Yes. So that is their first scene together. According to Cameron, it wasn't by any kind of design, although I think it, I couldn't have designed it better. There's a nervous energy to the scene and a hesitancy in them. They had rehearsed together, but they hadn't shot anything together. So if I had a choice, I probably would have preferred it deeper into the body of the shoot, but we were just trying to find things to shoot. Right. They literally just shooting things based on the fact that they had to wait for that set. It wasn't ready for months after they started shooting. So after seeing the scene on film, he felt like it, that nervous energy worked, obviously. He's the one who sketched the nude portrait of Rose. I Cameron, know that. Yeah. Well, this is for everyone who doesn't know. No, <laughs> but, but those are his hands that yes. they filmed. And they inserted those afterwards, after the fact, okay. those drawings. He like did them later. So yeah, I mean, it's a great scene and it's definitely um, a turning point in their relationship. Uh, well, they fuck soon after in the car. In the I was car. laughing at the hand. I was like, "Oh God, <laughs> so dramatic." The thing, the thing about Titanic, <laughs> there's so many. It's just there's so many cliches in it, from the handprint on the car oh, yeah. to you know, I'll never let go. Just like it's, oh, it's just yeah, it's, it's so corny full with the most corny cringe shit ever. But I still, but you. It's it's because the two actors are so good. Yeah, you believe it despite the corniness of the dialogue yes. sometimes. Um, so obviously, although that scene worked well, this shoot was just nonstop uh, hell for yeah. a lot of the actors and people involved. He really cemented his reputation as the scariest man in Hollywood. Cameron. He became known as uncompromising, hard charging perfectionist. He was a 300 decibel screamer. People described him as a modern day Captain Bly with his megaphone and walkie talkie swooping down on people's faces on his 162 foot crane. Can you imagine him coming at you? That's really (laughs) scary. It's like, get the fuck away. (laughs) I don't want anybody swooping in on me from a crane. No. It's like super villain shit. Winslet chipped her elbow a bone in her elbow during filming uh i know that sounds painful she was also scared like she had to spend a lot of time in a 17 million gallon water tank like she was like i'm gonna drown uh she also said there was times she was genuinely frightened of jim he had a temper uh she said god damn it he would yell at poor crew members that's exactly what i didn't want like that kind of stuff right uh she said he was nicer to them but it was hard to see him treat crew members poorly of course uh, her co-star bill paxton who had worked with cameron um before had experience with him um he said there were a lot of people on set jim is not one of those guys who has time to win hearts and minds over he just goes you know to that level the crew felt cameron had an evil alter ego they called midge which is jim backwards obviously um jim takes the criticism 
uh, in a not a way people probably would want to hear. <laughs> He's like filmmaking is war, a great battle between business and aesthetics. Yeah, so that's his deal. Yeah, but there's a lot of really nice directors out you there. You can be nice. There's a lot of yeah directors that are very pleasant. But to here's work the problem: with. he is a perfectionist and control, so he doesn't delegate things, and he gets overwhelmed. I think. Do uh, you know what I mean? It's directing is already hard. You have to delegate. He and sees he's, yeah. he sees Kubrick and Hitchcock, and he's like, they made some of the best movies of all time, and they were total fucking assholes. Well, Kubrick is his hero. Well, so I mean, go. there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so, like I mentioned before, there is a need for perfectionism in a way because a lot of these scenes cannot be reshot. Yeah, but obviously, you can do it in a nice, a nice way. The biggest uh, set piece and the most complicated complicated filming sequence is obviously the tilting poop deck, uh, where everything is people are just following falling down right <laughs> like along the the deck. Um, this is the action climax climax of the movie. It's achieved. By really sinking half a ship, they had 250 stunt people and extras who were doing this work. Um, that would be augmented by CGI in, in post, so it, it would look like more people. But this is really dangerous. Like the extras and at some uh, sometimes, like the stunt people were sometimes unharnessed. Not all of them are harnessed initially on these on these first like tr- attempts at doing this, and people were literally getting chipped cheekbones cracked ribs eventually everyone is harnessed because it was too risky like yeah it's really scary when you're watching that because it's just like you can see like you can't stop yourself right uh the free falls would eventually all be cgi so including the um the guy who fell on the propeller that's a big propeller yeah now by november 15th the boarding scenes are finally shot because the ship is complete. He chose to build the RMS Titanic on the starboard side as a study um, of weather data revealed it was prevailing north to south wind, which blew the funnel smoke. <laughs> like it's like all this technical stuff. But then when they shot the departure from Southampton, it was docked on its port side. So they had to do everything in reverse. So if someone was walking right in the script, they walked left during shooting so that in post-production they could flip it so that it looked correct. Oh my God. Um, so that's like the level of detail they went into. Um, so yeah, that's when all those opening scenes were where Rose comes out of the car and like lifts her hat up, that iconic shot. With the hat. With the hat. By Thanksgiving, the press are having a field day with this bloated epic. By now, people are like, this is going to cost upwards of $180 million. People were saying that James Cameron had gone full Colonel Kurtz, a reference to Apocalypse Now, uh, Now's deranged rogue colonel played by marlon brando they took off for christmas break and when they returned that was when they shot the sinking of the titanic so the lowering of the the lifeboats by the way was so difficult on the set that the, the people in charge of that were like wow i'm impressed they got that many down <laughs> like it was so hard to get those ships those lifeboats down just filming it they couldn't fucking do it i mean what you see with the lowering of the lifeboats on the Titanic is really how it went down in terms of it was a clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck. And they actually had difficulty doing it. So it right. like played into what was probably the case. Right. Now, by February, even the most dedicated of actors and crew were worn out by these long days that they were often fucking freezing cold and wet. Like they're these people are wet. They're, they're uh, in water. <laughs> yeah. The filming schedule was intended to last 138 days, grew to 160. Many cast members came down with colds, flu, kidney infections after spending all that time in the water. 
including Kate Winslet. In the end, she said she would never work with him again unless she earned a lot of money. Uh, Several others left production. Three stuntmen broke multiple bones. The Screen Actors Guild actually did an investigation and they found that nothing was inherently unsafe on the set. Like It was a safe set. It was just a dangerous um, job. Right. Uh, DiCaprio said that he never felt in danger. Um, So... Cameron's like, hey, I'm a passionate guy. I have a strong work ethic. And he basically never apologized for how he ran his uh, stat, his crew. He said, in terms of being kind of militaristic, I think there's an element of that in dealing with thousands of extra, extras and big logistics and keeping people safe. I think you have to have a fairly strict methodology in dealing with a large number of people. So maybe his uh, he's saying his anger and stuff was because he had to keep people safe. Again, you can do it nicely. Now the cost of the Titanic eventually reaches two hundred million, a bit a uh, a bit over one million per minute of screen time. Oh my god! One example I thought was interesting of the extravagance of the budget is during the dinner party scene. They're actually eating real beluga caviar. Really? And they did numerous takes, so they kept bringing in beluga caviar for all of these takes. <laughs> so these people are like pounding real beluga. Like, yeah. Well, that's fun. I guess for the people in the scene, but obviously I'm sure the people looking at the budget every day were like, well, can't you just use a cheaper <laughs> caviar? <laughs> um, obviously the Fox executives are panicking. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. There was some whole thing I didn't get into because it it's too boring for me. Another studio came in to help finance this movie at some point and for a percentage, and that created a whole lot of drama. Oh, my God. Uh, but I, I think it might have been Paramount. Um, yeah, but it was just like it's complicated business stuff, and I was just like, I can't. Um, they So, I mean, their fears now is like this is a three-hour movie. So yeah. already it's going to show less times per day right. like than a two-hour movie. So that means um, less revenue. But then long epics are often more likely to win Oscars. So Cameron was refusing to cut the movie. He's like, you want to cut my movie? You're going to have to fire me. You want to fire me? You're going to have to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) He's dramatic. And this is is a time before the golden age of television, so he couldn't just make it into an epic HBO eight-part. Oh, totally. Whatever. No, he had nowhere to go. So the executives are like, well, we're we're too far in now with this investment. Cameron offers to forfeit his share of profit profits, which which they're like, well, that's an empty gest- gesture because there's not going to be any profits. That, that's what they thought at this point. He had done that, I guess, in the past with some of his movies, uh, whatever. Now, March 20th is the last day of the shoot between Leo and Kate. And the last scene they film is their kiss in front of the sunset, Aww. which they thought looked like shit. But then turned out really good. Like when they were, it was literally a painted backdrop. That's uh, the one where she's flying, yeah. Jack. Um, so after that scene ends, they have a moment of remembrance for the lives lost. And then Leo threw a bucket of ice cold water on Cameron. <laughs> that was a little. Was he cute. mad? Uh, I'm sure he laughed, but then was probably furious. <laughs> <laughs> The last last scene was on March 22nd, and that is the scene where Captain of Captain Smith's demise on the bridge. Oh, Jesus. So that's the last one. Jim Cameron actually filmed underwater, filmed that scene in scuba gear, and he was said he was thinking while filming it, Lord, take me now, because Post is going to be a bitch. <laughs> so it's already being called Waterworld of 1997, the infamous bomb uh, by Kevin Costner. That's also a wet movie. <laughs> And cost a ton of money. Yeah. Nonstop stories of injuries, safety violations. Um, There was a Kate Winslet interview 
that got misconstrued where it looked like she was dogging the movie, but she wasn't. He's, he's really focused on post-it by, by this point. Like he's literally in the editing room for two straight months after uh, shooting stops. It becomes very clear early on that he's not going to make this July 4th release date. Um, so this uncertainty of Titanic fucks everyone's release schedule for the summer. Yeah. Because no one knows where to put their movies because they don't want to go up against Titanic. So it's like until they know where Titanic's going, they don't know where to put their movies. Um, there's a lot of back and forth. Eventually, um, they decide they're going to do Thanksgiving, but that would fuck up their own releases of Anastasia and Alien Resurrection. So they come up with December 19th, 1997 as a final date. Uh, so some of the editing things I mentioned, the SS Californian, which is a huge part of the story. Uh, he filmed scenes for that. Wow. There's tons of scenes filmed for that. Um, but when it came to cutting, uh, that's where he decided to cut because he said it was really the, to make the st- emphasis about creating the emotional truth rather than adding this element, which would create this whole other thing. It was like, it was a clean cut to get rid of that because it didn't really affect anything else that was going on. Also, even though it is a big part of the historical story, I think it adds to the sort of isolation feeling yeah. that it's just this one ship. In, yes. the, in the middle of the ocean. Totally. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the things that get cut are seen, seen as sort of being a self-contained thing that are easy, easy to get out of the story. Um, he also had different planned endings for the Brock Lovett story. In the original version, um, Brock and Lizzie see elderly Rose at the stern of the boat and fear she's going to commit suicide. Rose then reveals that she had the heart of the ocean diamond all along but never sold it. She tells Brock that life is priceless and throws the diamond in the ocean after allowing him to hold it. Um, so he laughs. He's he's like, I accept treasure is worthless. Like so, he has this little morality tale. I'm ending. sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I agree. I understand the sentiment, but that ending, her throwing the heart of the ocean into the water, will never not infuriate me because it's like you could have like paid for your grandkids college for life no it's irritating i agree uh paxton likes that they didn't do the corny laugh uh so Uh, i mean i'm glad that they cut out whatever that shit was (laughs) at least now there was also another version that was shown at the first test screening there was a fight between jack and lovejoy who is cal's um henchman or valet or whatever the fuck he is this takes place after Jack and Rose escape the flooded dining saloon, but the test audience disliked it. The scene is like supposed to add more um, like suspense. Cal has offered Lovejoy the heart of the ocean if he can get it from Jack and Rose. Lovejoy goes after the, the pair um, just as they're about to escape. He notices Rose's hand slap the water as it slips off the table, so she's hiding this jewel um, Jack is mad because he got framed for the theft earlier in the movie right. and he attacks Lovejoy and smashes his, smashes his head against a glass window, which explains the gash Lovejoy has on his head later in the movie. Yes. Um, so that scene gets cut and test audience, I think they didn't, they didn't like the idea that someone's going to risk their life for wealth like that. Uh, so they cut it out, but it also just seems like a bad scene to me. Now the press is tearing the movie to shreds based on nothing really. The focus groups were in love with this movie. Literally like every focus group ended in standing ovations. It had an unprecedented 80% excellent rating. Even Billy Zane's character, Cal, was getting 40% approval, which is unheard of for the villain. Right. 
but they just liked him in the movie. The sinking was actually the sixth most favorite scene in the movie. Wow. And that's how Cameron knew it would be a hit. Because it's like all of the first top scenes were like the car, the drawing, where she spits in his face. So it's like all of the top scenes were the love story related scenes uh, rather than the the special effects. Um, One of the scenes that almost universally was hated and people thought was very unrealistic was the band playing during the sinking of the Titanic, which is real. Well, guess what? That happened. Yes. So speaking of, of, of music, um, James Cameron listened to Enya the whole time he was writing and conceiving the Titanic. Well, Enya does the score <laughs> in the movie. Uh, she doesn't do the score. Well, she goes, ooh. That's not her. That's not Enya? No. That is a... That is an Icelandic singer named like I can't remember her name. My mind no. is getting blown. James all Horner. Sorts of ways. James Horner composed the score. He had worked with Cameron before. He knew that James Cameron was listening to Enya. So when he had the meeting, he's like, "I'm thinking something like Enya." And James is like, "You know, I was listening to Enya." And I think he did know. But they had had a fight on Aliens, so they were working back together. Yeah, I, I should have wrote down that singer's name. It's not Enya though. But I know that James Horner did the. The score, score. But I always thought the... the that singer? That singer was no, Enya. No, She's a very famous uh, Icelandic singer. I'm sorry um, to her. Yes. So he also wrote the song My Heart Will Go On with Will Jennings. He wrote that? With another person, yes. Now, Cameron did not want any songs or singing at the end of the film. Wait, James Cameron wrote My Heart Will no, Go On? No, James Horner. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. But honestly, I would believe that James Cameron I Seriously, wrote that. he's like, here, this is good. Here's a piece of now, shit. He, had, he got Celine Dion to record a demo to persuade James Cameron to do the song. He waited for Cameron to be in a good mood. And Cameron, his, his feeling on it was like, would you put a song at the end of Schindler's List? Like... <laughs> Which is a good point, yeah. but I don't feel like it's exactly the same thing. Uh, I will, I will, I will say though. However, when I was uh, the movie came out when I was eleven, so when I saw it when I was eleven, I do remember the moment that the Celine Dion played as the credits rolled, and thinking this is really corny. Yes, but obviously it's a huge hit. Well, I was, and the studios really wanted this hit song yes. to kind of pump up. You know what I mean? A lot of films do that. Obviously, I wouldn't say I'm in the minority of people who thought it was a shit song, but um, millions of people loved the song. Yes. Yes. And now that's so attached to the movie, it's kind of like whatever. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's a corny song, but yeah. I mean, (laughs) you you think of that movie now, you think of that song. (laughs) Right. Um, The Heart of the Ocean was designed by Asprey and Garrard. It's basically cubic zirconia set in white gold in an Edwardian style. Uh, That was a prop they made for the film. They did uh, commission to create an authentic necklace using the original design, and that was platinum set. That's too expensive. Well, it's a 171 carat heart-shaped Ceylon sapphire surrounded by 103 diamonds. Uh, the necklace was donated to Sotheby's auction house to benefit a charity um, that was the Princess Diana Memorial Fund and a Southern California Aid for AIDS Fund. Is that the one that Celine Dion wore to the Oscars? It was sold for $1.4 million under the agreement that Celine would wear it to the Academy Awards that year. So they had that written into the contract. The necklace now has never been made for public viewing. So sorry, you can't see anymore. Now the movie (laughs) premieres at film festivals. The first one is in Tokyo. It's, It's a huge hit. Tokyo teens are lined up outside to see this movie. It becomes very clear um, 
there's a huge hit on the hands, uh, their hands. Industry premieres are also huge. People are notoriously difficult audiences. They're all on their feet cheering. Opening weekend, they bring in $29 million, beating Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, which is impressive because of that three-hour runtime. Right. They actually did better than other movies. Um, the second weekend, it takes even more. 35 million. So it goes up the second weekend, which is also very rare. By February, it's reached 300 million. Um, and it has its best day ever almost two months later on Valentine's Day with $36 million. And it's still in the theater. Yeah. So Titanic is a worldwide smash. Um, and it, it's like that going over $100 million over budget is probably why it was a hit because. It was all the attention to detail yeah. and just not really cutting back on anything. It was just so grand. Yes. Now it gets 14 Oscar nominations, tying All About Eve for the most nominations ever. There is one glaring omission. Uh, Leo DiCaprio does not get nominated for his role uh, in the movie, despite Kate Winslet getting nominated. Gloria Stewart got nominated. Like uh, Hundreds I, of outraged fans call the Academy. I'm just gonna. Say, I was just gonna say, me and the other preteens of that era were very upset by that decision. Well, and Roger Ebert and Steven Siskel devoted a segment of their show at the movies to the oversight in particular. So it wasn't just teen girls; it was other people because yeah. they're like, he's he's the heart of the movie, right? Um, he had already been nominated before too for What's Eating Gilbert Great. Uh, so it's not like he was unknown to the Academy, right? Um, he ends up skipping the telecast. Now. Uh, obviously Titanic wins 11 awards at the show or the award show. Um, Linda Hamilton is with Cameron as his date to this, uh, award show. He wins best director and infamously shouts, I'm the king of the world at the end of his speech. Okay. (laughs) That's from the movie. He, He did that, but he also did something which at the time I found was even more cringe. And it's that he said, let's have a moment of silence. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> for Titanic. And then everyone in the audience at the Academy Awards had to be silent. And it was, I just remember it being very uncomfortable. It's very, yeah, yeah. So he 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 now has a different take on what he did. He said, I now realize what was wrong with my choice to do that. It wasn't the exact content of the line as much as the fact that I was quoting my own movie. I didn't realize how wrong that was. There's a hubris in assuming that everybody in the audience has seen your movie, even though you won, or that they're all actually fans. It was all phrased pretty carefully, but the error was that I was actually acting prideful about winning and with a reference to my own film. Uh, Cameron's best director speech did not land the way he'd hoped. The audience at the Shrine Auditorium that night were like, that's obnoxious. (laughs) They panned to Warren Beatty at some point, and his expression was like, what the fuck were you thinking, according to Cameron? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But to be honest... I thought it was kind of cute that he said that. Like, come on. It's like his moment. He fucking worked so hard. Like, maybe it's just because everyone doesn't like him. They don't want him to say that. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I didn't think it was that bad. It's corny. Here's the thing. I think if he did it off the cuff, it's not corny. But if he planned it, it's corny. Yes. And it's that's hard to know. Yeah. I think he planned it. <laughs> oh, he totally planned he it. He totally planned it, which is already corny to be like oh you know you're gonna win you plan your acceptance speech with i'm the king of the world also he didn't sell it he did it kind of half-assedly yeah do you know what i mean like it was like fake exuberance to me almost that's why leo should have gotten the oscar nomination because he sold that line well and better for that movie than for the fucking bear one 
I agree. <laughs> like, Look, he should not win for the bear movie. He's had way better roles. I agree wholeheartedly, and I think Leo Stans agree that he should have been nominated or won many, many times over before the bear movie. Yes. And no one saw that bear movie. I saw it because I, I, <laughs> I, I saw half of it because I had a screener. Okay. But I half of it is indicative. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that I think the bear movie was fine, but he should have won. I mean, it's not an iconic role to me, like that he did. There's like, like way more. Why didn't he win for Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf of Wall Street, or where he played Howard Hughes? Like it's a biopic. Come on, there's always me win. if you can. Yeah, catch I mean, me if you can. Like yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, but yeah, so that's the Titanic. I loved it, Desi. There was. So much stuff I didn't know. Oh, good. Um, the book is very good and detailed, but it just got too in the um, weeds for me. Right. Where I was like, I don't know what the fuck. You, I mean, you know. I know what you mean. It's I like, do. I can basically explain it, but I can't go into detail. And is it even worth it? It's like, if you're that interested, read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only here to gloss things over. <laughs> Well, I thought you did a very good Thank job. Thank you. Well, we'll have some good picks from this. We will have some great pictures from this. Uh, I want to thank you to everyone who has uh, said how much they enjoyed this Titanic extravaganza month. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be back with regular. Not like, what are we going to do now? What are we? I don't know. Well, we do. <laughs> oh, have, we have a mystery still. We, on our Patreon, we will be recording an episode about. Uh, conspiracy theories about the Titanic and other weird uh, stuff. Okay, cool. Oddball things. So uh, log, join our Patreon yeah. at Hollywood Crime Scene. Wait, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene yeah. if you're interested in hearing that episode. But next week for our main show will be a return to uh, your whatever, re- we your, do. whatever <laughs> I end up doing next week. All right, that's Bye. it. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.